Hello, this is Lily Gorin with the New Books Network, the New Books in Political Science podcast. Uh, today, I am joined by Chris Galderi, uh, author of the new books, Stranger in a Strange State, The Politics of Carpetbagging from Robert Kennedy to Scott Brown. This book was published just recently, this year, 2019, by SUNY University Press or State University of New York Press. Um, and it is a fascinating and really engaging discussion of carpetbagging coming in from outside the state to run for office there, most of the time for a Senate seat. But I'm going to let Chris talk about this uh, with us today. First, I'd like to introduce Chris Galdiri and ask him to tell us a little bit about himself and how he came to this project. Hi, Chris. Hi, Lily. Um, so I am a, uh, right now an associate professor at St. Anselm College in Manchester, New Hampshire, uh, and I came here after getting my uh, political science doctorate at the University of Minnesota and then teaching at St. Olaf College for a couple of years. And when I came out here, I sort of slotted into the American politics um, primary guy slot. Um, because if you're a college in New Hampshire, you have somebody who does primary stuff and studies party politics and campaigns and elections and that sort of thing. And uh, what piqued my interest here was throughout 2013, there was all this chatter that maybe Scott Brown, who had just lost in Massachusetts to Elizabeth Warren, uh, who had announced he wasn't going to run for governor in Massachusetts, wasn't going to run in the special election uh, to fill John Kerry's seat after he became Secretary of State, that he might pick up sticks and run in New Hampshire against Gene Shaheen. And that struck me as interesting um, because the idea of doing that sort of illuminates one of those things we tend to take very much for granted about politics, the kind of thing we take so much for granted that we never think about it, which is that people tend to run in the places where they live. And, And go ahead. Why do they run in the places that they live? Um, because it's easier and <laughs> because they have time to the place. Um, you, you know, when you live somewhere, you know what the issues are, you know who your neighbors are, you have that lived experience, you know, the same way that you can talk to your neighbor about the construction on Main Street or, you know, this person on the school board that you're not sure about or the decisions about, you know, some new building at a public park, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it makes sense uh, to run where you to run for office in the place where you live. Um, and when somebody like Scott Brown decides I'm going to cross state lines and run in another state, suddenly that's not there. Um, and that struck me as a really unusual thing. And that there's, I thought, well, there's probably a cute little paper to be written about this. And as I started digging around the literature on representation, um, I stumbled across some really interesting work from uh, British political science. And there were some papers that said in, in, in England, it's much more common, and I'm not a comparativist, so I'm hoping, I hope I'm not getting this wrong, uh, for you know, a party to sort of parachute a candidate they like into a safe district, which means that there are some places in the UK where you very rarely have someone who actually lives there representing them. Um, and that's not great from the perspective perspective of this idea of descriptive representation, that representatives should have things in common with the people that they represent. Uh, and there's some research that said, you know, there are parts of the their constituencies in the UK where um, coming from there in terms of descriptive representation in parliament is about as bad as 
being non-white or being a woman. Uh, and that struck me as really fascinating. Um, and as I kept thinking about it, the other thing that I remembered was when I was an undergrad at Georgetown in 1994, uh, you had a Senate race in Maryland where the Republican candidate was Bill Brock, who had been a senator from Tennessee back in the 1970s for one term before he ran in Maryland in the 90s. And that sort of got my wheels spinning, thinking, well, there are other folks like this out there. Like there's Bobby Kennedy, there was Hillary Clinton. And that sort of led me to do the sort of deep dive. And ultimately, I came up with a list of nine cases where you had a Senate candidate from one state running in another. Either they had held office in another state or they had um, uh, moved to a new state specifically to run for office there. Um, and that just seemed like a really interesting book for a project. And so my idea of a cute little paper uh, got bigger and bigger until it turned into a full-blown book project. And you do start out with the Scott Brown example. Mm -hmm. um, and, and you know, it's, it's fairly fresh in many of our minds. And it was also really interesting because he had been the, the sort of interim senator after Ted Kennedy died in Massachusetts. Um, and, and so it was kind of like, oh, we just got to know him as a Massachusetts senator, and now he's going to be a, a New Hampshire senator. Well, that's interesting. Um, and and you, you do a great job in this book sort of um, unpacking these particular case studies uh, of a variety of individuals over the course of, you know, a couple generations um, who have, in fact, sort of moved into different states and run for the Senate from them. But I wanted to first take you through, you know, sort of the theoretical setup for this, which you've, you've sort of touched on a little bit, and this idea of representation and why we are, we're sort of used to and, and make a lot about the fact that we want our elected officials, particularly senators, to be from the states that they represent. That's right. I mean, part of it is that, you know, it's back to this idea of, of the interests of a constituency. Um, when you elect somebody, you are saying to them, we want you to go to Washington and represent the interests of our state or our district for, you know, for your term in office. And it's not that people aren't naturally suspicious of politicians, but when you have someone who crosses a state line and arrives and says, not only should I be your senator, um, I should be your senator more than any other person who lives in this state or who lived in the state when I got here. Uh, and I think that's just adding another level of, of, you know, difficulty to the task of running for office. Um, so people are more suspicious of that. And it's also an, an action that is so nakedly ambitious that it makes people suspicious. Um, you know, one of the things I, I talk about a lot in the calculations of these candidates deciding to run a new state is the idea of personal political ambition. Um, and time and again, in most of these cases, what you find is that the carpetbagger in question was somebody who didn't have a better option available to them. Um, you, know, the, you know, to use the most famous, probably the most famous example in the book, you know, Robert Kennedy. Uh, he was his brother's attorney general, but then when his brother was assassinated, uh, he was still attorney general, but he was now Lyndon Johnson's attorney general. And relations between Bobby Kennedy and Lyndon Johnson had been terrible for you know 15 years at that point. Um, 
And Kennedy realized he couldn't stay as attorney general. You know, he wasn't going to have the same sort of access to the White House. He wasn't going to be involved in the same sorts of decisions. So he had this huge existential crisis. He thought about, you know, just sort of immersing himself in the day-to-day workings of the attorney general's job so much he'd never have to deal with Johnson. And that didn't happen. Uh, at one point, he suggested to Johnson, why don't you make me ambassador to South Vietnam? Uh, and Johnson declined to do that. Um, you know, he, the most natural step was go back home to Massachusetts and run for the Senate there, except his brother was the other senator from Massachusetts. Uh, and Ted was up for re-election in 1964. And I think even for Bobby Kennedy, pushing aside your baby brother so you can have his Senate seat was a little bit too ruthless for him. Um, Seems a bit so much. Just, just a little bit. Yeah, yeah. So he had an aide, you know, draft a memo to explore some options, and it came down to two of them. One was go back to Massachusetts and run for governor, uh, and the other was run for the Senate in New York. Um, and he didn't want to be governor because it was this really sort of parochial job. It was out of Washington. It was like a two-year term back then. He'd spend all the time fighting with the um, legislature over these really parochial matters, and he was worried that he'd really be diminished by that job. Um, on the other hand, Senator from New York is like, that's a different kind of senator. You know, you're the senator from New York, especially in the 60s. You know, we're talking Mad Men era. Uh, New York is the you know, driver of the country's culture and politics and, and, and this and that. Um, and fortunately for him, and this is the other part of the equation, you had a state Democratic Party that was in really terrible shape. You had, you know, this was the ascendancy of the Rockefeller Republican wing. So New York was a very Republican state in many ways in 1964. Um, And it was so much so that there wasn't really any uh, inspiring candidate running against the Republican incumbent, Ken Keaton. And so, you know, if there had been a sitting Democrat or if there had been a candidate that New York Democrats were really excited about, uh, Kennedy probably wouldn't have been able to run in New York either. But you had this, you know, the stars had to align just right where you had uh, a Republican running for re-election in a Democratic state where the Democratic Party was at a really weak moment where Bobby Kennedy could sweep in and I'm coming to the rescue. I'm going to get this Senate seat for the Democrats. In New York. And this is a point that you also make with regard to other examples, that oftentimes a a carpetbagger candidate is one who comes in because whatever party they're from has basically no other options in in a certain kind of way. Exactly, exactly. You know, if if a state party has a good solid candidate that lots of people in the party like that's familiar to them, odds are they are not going to get rid of them just because somebody with a famous name comes to town. Um, What you need is a situation where there isn't really a better option. So you have a candidate or a carpetbagger who doesn't have a better option, and you have a party that also doesn't have a better option. There's probably like a really horrible metaphor to be made about taking your cousin to homecoming uh, or something like that. Um, We shouldn't go there. Yeah, yeah, because, yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, But parties with better choices don't need carpetbaggers. You know, if you have an incumbent that you like, if you have a bunch of ambitious um, House members and governors who are thinking about running for the Senate, there's no room for a carpetbagger. What you need is a race that nobody wants to take the plunge on. 
and so from the perspective of the carpetbagger, it's not necessarily always a great option, especially if you're not like a really well-known candidate like Kennedy or Hillary Clinton, but it's better than nothing. Uh, you know, Scott Brown probably had a better shot of beating Gene Shaheen in New Hampshire than he did of beating Ed Markey in Massachusetts in 2014, for example. And, and so I wanted to ask you a little bit more about, you know, essentially you have in the book, you, you have, you know, a lot of discussion about Robert Kennedy as one of the most famous, as you note, and I've already noted, sort of carpetbaggers. Um, and also, of course, Hillary Clinton, um, who was in many ways a kind of stateless politician um, when she was looking to run for office at the end of Bill Clinton's presidential term. Can you talk a little bit about both um, Kennedy and Hillary Clinton coming into New York in particular? Sure. Yeah, I, I think one of the things that emerges over the course of this book is that New York is probably different from most states in terms of being receptive to a carpetbagger-like candidate. Uh, and there are a couple of reasons for that. One is just the social and political culture of New York. Uh, it is a place where people move to make fresh starts, um, and Richard Nixon moved there for a fresh start twice. Um, and outside of politics, you know, to think of the you know uh, kid getting off the bus determined to become, to become a Broadway star or you know a rock star or whatever, uh, that sort of thing. So when you run as a carpetbagger in New York, you're kind of tapping into that um, cultural aspect of the state uh, because it's New York. You, know, you oftentimes have this weird dynamic where, particularly when it comes to people uh, in New York politics and New York Democratic politics, is that they really want a very special celebrity sort of candidate for the Senate. And a lot of New York politicians don't actually want to go to Washington. <laughs> because if you're a New Yorker, you know, you look down your nose at Washington, it's this this little town on the Potomac, it's tiny, it's Hot. provincial, et cetera, et cetera. Why would you go to New York when you could and be a member of the Senate when you could stay in New York City and be on the sewer commission or something like that? Um, and there really are politicians who make that that sort of calculus about it. Um so when you have, you know, Kennedy or Clinton who's interested in it, that piques the interest of a lot of New York politicians who are like, oh, this would be good for our party. Uh, we like sending somebody who's special and well-known to Washington. We like having uh, a senator who's influential beyond just being one out of a hundred. And sending a Bobby Kennedy, sending a Hillary Clinton um, is a way of doing that. And and what is distinct about Clinton's also, Clinton's run um, in, you know, at the, at the end of that, that, um, sort of Bill Clinton's administration and the fact that, as you know, she was first lady in Arkansas. She's originally from Illinois. She's then, she had then lived in, um, Washington DC for eight years. They didn't even own a home. Um, and, and so she's able to not only, you know, sort of, as you say, tap into some of the cultural, um, understanding of New York, liking the high profile, the famous, the celebrity, the fresh start. Um, but you also note that she, unlike other carpetbaggers who you talk about in the book, spent a lot of time getting to know New York. That's right. Um, she did this on a very long time scale. The chatter about her potentially running in New York started after the 1998 elections. 
1998 was kind of a pivotal year for Clinton. Um, it was the year of the Bill Clinton impeachment scandal, um, during which Clinton's approval ratings generally went up because people were very sympathetic with her. Uh, she had also uh, made a lot of campaign appearances uh, for Chuck Schumer in New York and for other uh, Democratic candidates in the state. She'd had a couple of initiatives as First Lady that brought her to the state. Uh, and so a lot of folks in New York politics, like Chuck Rangel and, and Chuck uh, Schumer, um, looking at her and thinking, you know, Bobby Kennedy did this. Maybe Hillary could, too. We have the seat opening up because Pat Moynihan's retiring and so on. Um, and that gave her a lot more lead time than someone like Kennedy did. Uh, Bobby Kennedy moved to New York, I think, in August of 1964. Uh, Hillary moved there in early 1999, and she didn't spend a lot of time in Manhattan at first. Instead, she embarked on this listening tour of upstate, where she would go to you know small towns and cities, and she would sit down with folks from the community uh, and ask them, "So, what do folks in in Utica need from Washington? You know, what are the issues?" that are facing Troy or Syracuse or, you know, whatever town she was in. Um, and this did a couple of things. Um, one is that it shored up a traditional Democratic weakness in the state, which was the upstate parts of, of New York. Um, it showed that she was paying attention to it. She was actually listening during the listening tour, so she was able to craft policy proposals and, and that sort of thing um, that showed some familiarity with the state. And it meant that she essentially adopted upstate as where she was coming from. Uh, I think everybody thought, okay, it's Hillary. She's going to, you know, buy a condo in Manhattan and run from there. Uh, and instead, you know, they moved to Chappaqua, and she spent a lot of time talking to folks upstate before she you know, really made a big move into the city. And so the distinction between also RFK and Hillary Clinton that you talk about in the book, you have two other kind of celebrity politicians who aren't quite as successful, um, Hal Ford Jr. and Cheney. Can you sort of discuss a little bit a comparison between, you know, how the sort of opportunities were available and successful for Clinton and RFK and not so much for other celebrity politicians? Yeah, I, I think, well, the biggest difference between Harold Ford and Liz Cheney versus Kennedy and Clinton is that they were challenging incumbents in their own party. And, uh, you know, as I said earlier, one of the things that seems to emerge is that for a carpetbagger to succeed, one of the things you need, uh, or to even win a nomination, let alone win an election, is the state party needs to be on board with you. And when you have, you know, in the case of Wyoming, you had, from Wyoming Republicans' perspective, a perfectly good senator with three-term seniority in Mike Enzi. So why would you get behind Liz Cheney when Mike Enzi, who, you know, you've known for years because it's Wyoming, and Wyoming politics is all about um, personal connections and knowing people and face-to-face, -face, you know, interactions, um, why would you want to dump Mike Enzi overboard? because Liz Cheney decides she's from Wyoming after all. Um, and so there wasn't really an opportunity. There wasn't a constituency. There wasn't a party that she could go to and say, look, I'm here to help you. Um, you don't have a candidate, and I'll be that candidate. No, they had a, didn't just have a candidate. They had a senator. Um, in the case of Harold Ford, he looked into challenging Kirsten Gillibrand, um, who was running for a, the remainder of Hillary Clinton's term in 2010. And again, you had a, a situation where it was really tough for him to articulate 
a reason for him to run beyond the fact that he really wanted to get to the Senate one way or another. He had lost in Tennessee in 2006 and relocated to New York to work on Wall Street, to be a, uh, an on-camera contributor for some TV networks and that sort of thing. Uh, but he hadn't built a political base. Um, whereas Kirsten Gillibrand, uh, from the moment she got the appointment to uh, what had been Hillary Clinton's Senate seat, uh, began working like crazy to lock down support among key constituencies throughout the state. So, you know, she had town halls on gun control in Harlem. She, you know, sat down with Hispanic leaders. She sat down with leaders of the uh, LGBTQ community um, to the point that when Ford, you know, started, you know, first of all, she scared off all of the other uh, New York House members who were thinking about challenging her. Um, whereas for Ford, he didn't really have a better option. You know, he basically closed the door on running in Tennessee um, with all the time he was spending in New York. And even there, um, what he found was that there just wasn't that much appetite for him. You know, there wasn't a really clear constituency in the Democratic Party of New York that he could speak to in a way that Gillibrand um, could not. And, you know, I, I talked earlier about the campaign people were expecting Hillary Clinton to run, you know, one that was really Manhattan-based and that sort of thing. I mean, Harold Ford kind of was running a caricature of that campaign. You know, this is somebody who, you know, got shoveled around town in town cars from one exclusive club to an office on Wall Street to NBC News. Um, you know, he'd never set foot on Staten Island, but he had flown over it in a private helicopter, that sort of thing. So, you know, it was really just a case of, you know, when you just have that ambition and you don't have a party that needs you, um, you just sort of fall flat on your face. Um, I will say, though, um, one difference between Cheney and Ford is that Cheney seems to have learned from her 2014 um, attempted campaign because two years later, uh, she ran for the state's uh, House seat and won. And I think she's been in Congress for three years and she's already in the House leadership. Yeah. So, you know, I think that does show, though, that, um, you know, I, I talk about this a bit toward the end of the book. There is, you know, losing a carpetbag race doesn't have to be the end of the line for you uh, career wise if you're willing to stay in that state and maybe run for a lower office and take advantage of an opportunity when it presents itself. And so the some some of the lessons for carpetbagger is essentially well if you're going to do this you might as well set up shop here and and you know really be committed to represent the state or locality as opposed to then just going back to wherever you came from or someplace else completely. Yeah. So so if you're going to do it, pick the state very carefully um, because uh, you might find yourself presented with staying there or having no political career whatsoever. And so you also have any number of really fascinating other carpetbagger examples besides mm -hmm. these celebrities. Um, pick any of them. You and I were talking a little bit about Alan Keyes as a fascinating carpetbag story um, in the 2006, no, 2004 election. 2004. Yep. 2004 election against Barack Obama. Um, and, and tell us a little bit about failed carpetbaggers beyond Ford and Cheney? Sure. Um, well, let's, since you brought up Alan Keyes, let's talk about that race. Um, I mean, that race, um, you know, as I said before the show, is just like, it, it is just such a strange and Baroque election. It, it's almost 
you know, as you as you read it and as you try to write about it, you know, everything about it is just bizarre. Um, it starts when the Republican nominee for the Senate, uh, an investment ba- banker by the name of Jack Ryan, um, has to step down from the from the ballot because his ex-wife, who played seven of nine on Star Trek Voyager, uh, turns out to have accused him during their divorce of taking her to sex clubs in Paris and she didn't want to be there and yada, yada, yada. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So, you know, there was one thing where, um, you know, Illinois Republicans were like, you have to get off the ticket. We cannot have someone who did this on the ticket. Um, so they got rid of him and then they found that nobody else wanted the gig. Um, they, whoever got it was going to be running against Barack Obama. Um, it was a presidential year. Illinois is a pretty reliably democratic state. Uh, and so, you know, they asked former governors. None of them wanted to do it. There were candidates who had lost to Jack Ryan in the primary. Um, none of them could unite both wings of the state party committee. You know, the, the moderate couldn't raise money. The conservative could raise money, but he was so extreme on immigration that he couldn't win the support of the moderates, et cetera, et cetera. Um, at one point, they were trying to recruit Mike Ditka to run, um, and he said no because he would have lost all of his licensing deals um, because that was back when you couldn't like have an outside job and hold public office. Um and ultimately, they imported Alan Keyes, who had uh, run for Senate in Maryland a couple of times, who had run for president a couple of times, uh, to move to Illinois and uh, become the Republican nominee for the Senate. And Alan Keyes, you know, didn't have a platform at that time, uh, much as you know Bobby Kennedy and Hillary Clinton had not uh, when they ran, um, and just proceeded to run this absolutely bombastic campaign against Obama. Uh, a very hard right social conservative uh, campaign. At one point, he attacked Dick Cheney's daughter Mary uh, for being a lesbian, which you know he managed to really tick off uh, gay activists and Republicans at the same time in 2004, which is quite hard to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah like take genuine talent. Um, <laughs> and you know he didn't show an effort to learn about the state. He was not. You know, this this incredibly well-known political figure like Bobby Kennedy had been or Hillary Clinton had been. Um, and he wound up losing just by an absolute landslide to the point where, you know, there were candidates in other states who wanted Obama to come campaign for them after he had spoken at the Democratic National Convention. And they'd say, like, but you're going to win. You're running against Alan Keyes. You can afford to come out to Pennsylvania and fundraise for me or something. Um, so that was, you know, and that was you know, possibly the most fun to write because, uh, uh, just because of the reporting on it, and it was just such a, a strange and unusual race. And as you note in the book also that there was a national focus on that particular race because Obama had been the keynote at the, um, at the Democratic Convention in 2004. He was now a bit more of a celebrity politician. Um, and there was some anticipation that he might be the future of the Democratic Party. So there was a lot of attention on this race, and and the Illinois Republican Party basically was stuck with Alan Keyes. That's right, and I think that attention made all those other folks even less interested in running. 
Um, you know, by, by the time Obama was finished with his keynote, he went from being this state level candidate who folks had heard good things about to this, you know, he, he, was, he was a political rock star. Um, and it led the outgoing Republican senator to say the nomination is now like accepted. The Republican nomination for Senate in Illinois is now like basically a cancer transplant. Uh, you know, whoever gets this is going to spend three or four months running for the Senate and then you're going to get clobbered. And that's exactly what wound up happening. And that's why I think Alan Keyes was who you wound up with as opposed to, you know, finding a, you know, a state senator with nothing better to do for the fall of 2004. So provide us with another example from your um, your case studies um, mm-hmm. of one that is not as well known as perhaps the 2004 race in Illinois, um, but that is an example of you know some of these tensions around what we're thinking about when we talk about carpetbaggers. Sure. Well, I think you know in terms of those tensions. Um, one that strikes me as as one where the carpetbagger sort of got a raw deal on the carpetbagger front was uh, Bill Brock. He was a Republican who from Tennessee who had served one term in the Senate in the 1970s. He had gone on to be chair of the RNC. Um, he'd had a couple of cabinet posts in the Reagan administration. Um, but by the time 1994 ran around, you had a Democrat in the White House, um, and he had been on the outs with uh the George Bush administration because he had managed Bob Dole's campaign, so he hadn't really um, had a role there. Um, and he decides to run for the Senate in 1994. And at the time he did that, he had been at least a part-time resident of Maryland since the mid-60s, uh, because that was the era when you get elected to the Senate and you go to the Maryland suburbs, you go to the Virginia suburbs and you buy a house and you leave your family there. Um, and over time, Brock had slowly made Maryland his primary residence. He had come to you know, pay taxes in the state. Um, so he really, you know, I, I think you know, of anybody in the book, he has the strongest claim to say, yeah, a long time ago I represented another state, but I've lived here for you know, decades, um, and I think that makes me qualified to run for office. Um, his problem was that Maryland is one of the most democratic states in the union. And so running as conservative Republican in a state where two of the major Democratic constituencies are federal employees and contractors who commute into Washington, D.C. for work or work in federal agencies in the Maryland suburbs and African-American voters uh, in and around Baltimore in particular. And so you had a former Tennessee senator who had voted against the Civil Rights Act and, and you know, had taken other positions that put him really out of step with uh, Maryland voters. And because he was new to the state from voters' perspective, um, he didn't have the sort of um, relationships where he could have uh, you know, negotiated those positions over the years. Um, you know, if he'd gotten reelected to three or four terms in Tennessee, um, if that came up, he probably would have been, a, you know, he would have had a relationship with voters where he could have said, well, you know, I passed that vote in 1964 and my views have changed. Um, and in fact, Brock could make, um, you know, a fairly credible argument that, you know, he had, you know, enacted um, policies at the Labor Department, for instance, without hiring uh, minority workers and that sort of thing um, that showed that he his views had changed from when he was a young member of Congress in the 1960s. Um, but he was running in a very blue state, and he was running against Paul Sarbanes, uh, a Democratic incumbent who was 
one of those, you know, quietly effective multi-term senators that nobody ever hears about because one of their goals in life is to never, ever be on television. Um, and so, you know, you had a situation where he's running against a senator where his constituents can't point to anything he's ever done, but they know he's good at his job and they figure he must have done something. Um, and so, you know, he sort of got the short end of the carpetbag stick. Um, sorry, I just had an image of a carpetbagger with the hobo's bindle instead of a carpetbag uh, coming to my head. Um, so you see, he sort of got the short end of the carpetbag stick, but he was also running in a really hopeless race. Um, you know, the Maryland Republican Party in 1994 was so decrepit that, uh, you know, a former senator from Tennessee comes along and they're like, oh, you sure you want to run for the Senate? Because we could run you for governor instead. Um, so, you know, I think that's an example of somebody, um, you know, a very obscure race, but it's one that, um, you know, I, I found really helped illustrate this in part because it was so obscure. It wasn't the focus of national attention. You didn't have a celebrity candidate, but the same sorts of issues played out. And and one of the things that you're noting in this particular example with regard to Brock is while he was very involved in politics mm-hmm. throughout essentially most of his professional career, um, he wasn't necessarily involved as an elected politician. That he was involved at national level politics, as you note, um, he was involved in the you know administration, the Reagan administration, and so forth. But but that he didn't necessarily have a politician's relationship to the people, as you of, uh, as you say, of Maryland, and that was and he couldn't make the deal then with them because they didn't know him as a politician. That's right. And he had never had the kind of jobs where, you know, you go even, you know, within the party, when you're the secretary of labor, you don't go to, you know, uh, county Republican fundraisers or, you know, other things where you get to know folks in the party. He was also at a disadvantage because uh, Maryland had a primary and, you know, he had to run in that and he attracted some very unusual opponents, uh, one of whom had no compunctions about going very harshly negative against him because you know, he wasn't somebody she was ever going to have to worry about in her political future. He was a senator from Tennessee. You know, she wasn't worried that he was going to become governor and then, oh gosh, I wouldn't be able to deal with him because he's, you know, got something that I need. No, it's like, you know, there's, there's no, um, there's nothing to lose when you're running against a carpetbagger who's basically unknown to people. And this is probably their, if they lose, this is their one shot in your state. And this is one of the points that you make in the book is that carpetbaggers often have this disadvantage of not being known, particularly mm-hmm. not known as well um, in the era before, you know, sort of social media and massive amounts of political attention. Um, you know, Scott Brown seems like he's, uh, he's on the cusp of some of that change period um, in that there was a lot of attention to him for a variety of reasons. Um, and then picking up, as you say, picking up sticks and moving to New mm-hmm. Hampshire, even though he had property there and and was originally from there, um, it, it still didn't necessarily make him less of a carpetbagger because he'd just been representing Massachusetts. That's right. That's right. And you know, the property was a vacation home in Rye, which is a um, lovely place on the seacoast um, where you know, most of New Hampshire visits there. Uh, once in a while to go to the beach as opposed to living there. 
Um, so, you know, it wasn't as bad as Harold Ford living in, you know, a gilded penthouse uh, in Manhattan. Um, but it was, you know, a very particular part of New Hampshire where um, where Brown was living. And so my my final question about the book is, what was the most surprising thing that you learned about carpet bagging? Um, hmm, I don't know that I can narrow it down to one. Okay. Um, but I think the, one of the biggest ones is how consistent the the um, outline of the carpet bagger story is. Um, and I think I even say this in the book. You know, by the time you get to the Scott Brown chapter, um, you know, you know what's going to happen. You've got a a, a very ambitious politician um, with no good options. You've got a state party that doesn't have a good option. Either nobody wants to run or the people who are running are really, you know, uninspiring or uh, the, the party is worried about them. Um, and so you have this, this you know, dynamic where the party is either like, oh, wow, we can get this well-known person to run or, well, we have nobody better. We, let's talk ourselves into doing this and hope it, hope it works out. Um, and, you know, it was just really striking to me that, you know, how much the, you know, Bobby Kennedy story in 1964 um, is familiar. Uh, you can see the structure of it in the Scott Brown story in 2014. Um, the other thing that struck me is how I think something might have changed in our politics um, with the 2014 carpetbaggers um, in that, you know, Scott Brown didn't do badly for himself in New Hampshire. Uh, he didn't win, but he didn't embarrass himself. Uh, Gene Shaheen got 51.5% in 2008, a really good year for Democrats. Uh, in 2014, a really good year for Republicans, she got 51.6%. Uh, so I don't think there was really a carpetbagger tax for Scott Brown necessarily um, in, uh, in New Hampshire. And then if you look at Liz Cheney, she's somebody who ran and lost and at the time, it was a really, you know, kind of comedy of errors uh, campaign. You know, there was controversy over a fishing license that became a big thing. You had all these Republicans in Wyoming and D.C. saying, oh, don't do it, Liz. You shouldn't be running here. And then as soon as she drops out, um, oh, Liz, you have a great future in politics. And in fact, she gets elected to the House and, and she's in the leadership. Um, and since then, you know, we saw Mitt Romney, who had been governor of Massachusetts, get elected to the Senate in Utah without uh, a whole lot of uh, controversy on this front. Uh, we nearly saw a situation uh, in Alabama where a congressman from Florida uh, was being floated as a potential um, Senate candidate uh, touring against Doug Jones next year. Um, and that got me thinking whether, you know, the fact that our politics are so polarized might not work to the advantage of a carpetbagger candidate. Um, you know, if you can get yourself into a situation where, you know, it's a state that's very friendly to your party. And for whatever reason, you don't want to run for higher office in the state that you're presently in or you're originally from, uh, it might look like a better option for a lot of people. Um, you mentioned social media. Well, you know, a losing campaign can still really boost your profile. Just um, look at Beto O'Rourke. Exactly, exactly. Look at Beto O'Rourke, look at Stacey Abrams, look at Andrew Gillum. Um, you know, I, I think I said on Twitter, somebody said, you know, how come nobody talks about Gretchen Whitmer, the governor of Michigan for, for 2020? 
Um, and I said, well, she made the mistake of winning her election. Uh, and if she had just had the sense to lose, then maybe people would have been trying to draft her to run for president, just like with Beto and, and Stacey Abrams and, and so on. Um, so I think, you know, I, I never, I think, you know, you need a really particular set of circumstances for a carpetbagger run to make sense. Um, but I think when those happen, it might be easier now to convince somebody to take the plunge. Um, and I think, I mean, I think you're, you're sort of the, the examples that you provide us with regard to Liz Cheney and, you know, again, Scott Brown, not winning, but not, not like wiped out like Alan mm-hmm. Keyes. Um, and of course, Mitt Romney, who has now been, you know, governor of Massachusetts and senator from Utah, mm-hmm. which is an interesting combination. Isn't um, it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and so that maybe, as you say, that less being a representative from your state or locality and more being a representative of your party during these polarized times, maybe um, an evolution in the carpetbagger narrative. Yeah, and, and I think one of the other things that could be going on is that it could be an appealing option for um, you know people who run nationwide races and don't quite make it. Um, again, you know, if, if Orrin Hatch decided he wanted to run for a ninth term or whatever it was, um, you know, obviously Romney wouldn't have run in Utah. But you know, I I could imagine for a you know former nominee um, who is of a certain age and a friendly state has a seat opening up, bringing that person in might be might make sense for the party. You know, if you bring in a Mitt Romney in Utah, um, you've kind of frozen whatever controversies are going on between various factions of the state party at least for six years, maybe more, if he decides to um, seek additional terms after this one is up. Um, but again, you know, I think it would, you know, need the right candidate, the right state and these sorts of things. Um, you know, folks used to talk about, oh, maybe Michelle Obama will run for the Senate in California. And I would always say, California is full of Democrats who want to be senators. Right. Dianne Feinstein has been in the Senate since I was a freshman in college, I think. Um, you know, there are a lot of Democrats chomping at the bit to run for the Senate when she retires, if she retires, um, after this term. Um, California does not need Michelle Obama to come in and run for the Senate. Um, what you need is this, like, you know, it is a state party that is functional, but having a bad decade, and likes the idea of a well-known figure coming in. And that just doesn't happen that often. Yeah, I think particularly now with regard to the parties um, at the state levels are Mm -hmm. are fairly well organized in lots of ways that they may not be necessarily popular in a particular state, but they're generally a little bit more organized. Um, Right, right. Or in a state where they're not organized, you know, like, you know, Wyoming Democrats are going to have a really hard time attracting a carpetbagger. Right. Because what's the pitch there? Come run for office in Wyoming and lose. <laughs> uh, and, you know, I, I don't see many people wanting to take that particular plunge. And particularly because there are, I think, a lot of Democrats who own nice property in Wyoming, too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, and you know, maybe if more of them voted in Wyoming, uh, Wyoming politics would look different. Um, but, um, you know, until Amazon puts, uh, you know, its third headquarters in Cheyenne, 
Um, you know, there are a lot of states that aren't going to go blue anytime soon, just as there are a lot of, you know, California's probably not going red anytime soon. Um, I don't see, you know, Republicans, you know, I don't see Dick Cheney moving to New Jersey to run for the Senate anytime soon. No, you know, I don't think so. Yeah. I don't think so. So, Chris, what are you working on now? Uh, right now, I am working on a short book about uh, Donald Trump's relations to New Hampshire politics. Um, and basically, New Hampshire has been kind of a pivotal state for him. If it wasn't for the primary, he probably wouldn't have uh, won the Republican nomination. And if he hadn't won the Republican nomination, he wouldn't have been in a position to win the general election. Um, it's a state where you, you saw... Um, uh, sort of mirrored national politics in a lot of ways uh, throughout his term so far. Uh, you, know, you have had a lot of organizing, a lot of activism, a lot of first-term Democrats uh, running in 2018, while you had a unified Republican government for the first time in over a decade trying to get their priorities through while they had unified control of the government. Um, and then we have uh, you know the 2020 primary looming. So it's a project that's trying to look at both, you know, how Trump ran here and what has happened here since he took office and what, if anything, does that mean for 2020? So right now I'm at the stage where I want to set it on fire um, because, you know, everybody who's written a book project hits that point. Yes. Um, but but my hope is it will be a, a an interesting look at you know, politics in this era from the perspective of uh, the Granite State. Cool. So when you finish that book, will you come on the New Books Network and talk to me about it? Absolutely. Awesome. I want to thank you, Chris Galdieri, for talking to me today about Stranger in a Strange State, the Politics of Carpetbagging from Robert Kennedy to Scott Brown, published by SUNY Press 2019. Is there any place in particular that one can get a copy of this book? Um, it's available at the usual online retailers. Um, you can also special order it through your friendly neighborhood independent bookstore. Um, so I think one of those uh, options uh, should work for readers who are looking to get hold of it. Um, my friendly neighborhood independent bookstore is Gibson's Bookstore in Concord. I recommend anybody who is in town come and visit there. Um, and it's one of the bookstores. Uh, this is a nice thing about the 2020 primary. Uh, New Hampshire has a lot of independent bookstores and they keep hosting campaign events. Um, and so if you've been shopping at the right bookstore at the right time on the right day, you might have seen anybody from uh, Cory Booker to Kamala Harris to Pete Buttigieg to Beto O'Rourke, um, because these bookstores are being really interesting um, locations for civic engagement and political campaigning in 2020. In New Hampshire. In New Hampshire. In New Hampshire. Well, thank you again for joining me today, Chris. It's great talking to you about carpetbagger. It was great to be here.